According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles and we get started to... Uh, we're going to head for Luke 9, but on your way, let's hit John chapter 7 one more time. Luke 9 was a quick stop off in John 7. We uh, concluded last week with episode 54, Jesus rejects his brother's advice. And what did we conclude? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to tell you what you need to do. All right. But if it's unbelievers giving you their wisdom in terms of what you need to do in the, for the plan of God for your life, um, don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about what unbelievers think you need to do to pursue the will of God for your life. They, don't ha- they do not have the divine viewpoint perspective to supply any kind of wisdom whatsoever. Their wisdom is that which is from below, which is natural, earthly, demonic. The Lord's not exactly bending over here backwards to take uh, ministry recommendations from these unbelieving brothers. As we look at it, we see uh, in John 7, the Feast of Booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, abandon this place, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. So they're concerned about the publicity. They're all caught up in how his reputation is being spread and how how he's making a name for himself and how these other things are going on and why he's staying so long in Galilee uh, when this only leads to further obscurity and so forth is just beyond them. It's driving them crazy. And so he tells them, he says, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. We need to stop and recognize that there are circumstances and conditions in which the unbeliever is quite naturally at home. And uh, this cosmos world system is one of those situations. We're the fish out of water. We're the odd duck, as it were, because we are transferred out of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so these things become important. Now, he says he's not going and they head off without him. But he himself will be departing. And what I want you to see here is in verse 9, it says, Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But then you notice in verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the idea of uh, going up in secret, he's going to get there. He will take part in the feast, but not in the way that his brothers want him to, and he won't be up front, he won't be making a big show, and he won't be uh, presenting himself and demanding the uh, the kingdom obedience that this feast uh, speaks of. We looked at that a little bit from Zechariah 14. We'll have more to say on that as as we approach the uh, crucifixion event. For today, though, let's turn over to Luke chapter 9, because it's on the way to Jerusalem that a number of other events take place. And so we've got the last two episodes in the Galilean ministry, including episode 55, the Galilee departure and the Samaritan rejection, and then episode 56, the cost of discipleship. And with episode 56, we will be bringing the Galilean ministry to a close and uh, ready to print off another big batch of notes. It's been a while since we've... uh, 
uh, we've been in the Galilean ministry, I think, longer than the, the Galilean ministry actually lasted. And so we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the Galilean ministry notes and be able to get a packet uh, to you that will have all of these episodes in there. All right, for today, though, we are in Luke 9, verses 51 through 56. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I love this passage. This is where James and John want to blast these people to smithereens. And, uh, and, and I appreciate this because I have the same thought occasionally. And uh, usually it has something to do with traffic on 183. All right. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. There's a large parenthesis there, or really a couple of verses in brackets. We'll talk about that here today. All right, let's take time for silent prayer. Before we get started on our notes, make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have on this day to assemble together for instruction. We ask for distractions to be set aside for your hand of blessing upon our assembly. We thank you for each one that was able to be here today. In fact, Thank you for the extra circumstances that allowed some folks to be here. We just thank you for being so faithful. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Power failure at work. That's amazing. I'm going to remember that. If I ever need a day off, I'll just booby trap the electrical room or something and arrange for a power failure. All right. Episode 55, the Galilee departure and Samaritan rejection. Now, the context for this under point one, it's important that we recognize Jesus' brothers were focused on on the subservience of Gentile kings. Remember, that was the backdrop for the previous episode. They wanted him to go up and make a big splash because to them, and, and we don't have any record that they urged him ever to go to a Passover, what we have, though, is that they were focused on the Feast of Tabernacles. They really, really wanted him to make the biggest impact he could at the Feast of Tabernacles. Orientation to that, as we saw in Zechariah 14, the subservience of Gentile kings. So when you look at John 7, verses 2 through 4, and you relate it over to Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, I think you get the complete picture on that. Jesus' brothers were focused on the subservience of Gentile kings, but Jesus was fixed on his return to God the Father. Luke 9:51, we can relate it to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. We can also relate it over to uh, Revelation chapter 5. There's a handful of places we could go with this. Uh, let's go ahead, just so that we have it, the vivid picture in our mind. Let's return to Zechariah again. I know we covered this a couple weeks back, but it's worth looking at it again. Zechariah 14, and uh, verses 16 through 19. Zechariah 14 is useful for a lot of different reasons. We've just completed a study on the rapture. One of the distinctions, of course, between the rapture and the second advent is that the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air, and then we return back to heaven 
to the, uh, the mansions that he's gone to prepare. Uh, here, Zechariah 14 and verse 4 points out that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So that's a tremendous difference between meeting the Lord in the air and going back to heaven where his feet never do touch down and second advent where his feet do touch down. And when his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, there's a great earthquake and a, a, the mountain splits. Half of it moves north, half of it moves south. There's now a valley in the middle and um, provides for them to flee there in verse 5. Anyway, that's in Zechariah 14. A little bit further down in the same chapter then, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All right, now occasionally, of course, today we've got annual gatherings of different international bodies. Sometimes it's the United Nations or maybe it's something else. It's a meeting of the G8 nations or different things. And they gather together on an annual basis or the World Trade Organization meets every three years or whatever it ends up being. Their purpose, though, is not to assemble together and to worship Jesus Christ. Typically speaking, when, a, when an international body gathers nowadays, it's just the direct opposite. <laughs> it's in opposition to Jesus Christ. It's in uh, complete hatred of, of divine norms and standards of Christian values and all the rest. Or it's uh, designed to take more money from the United States as they can and things like that. Uh, that's not what's going to take place in the Millennial Kingdom. All right? There probably will not be a United Nations anymore. As far as I understand uh, the eschatology of it, this will be the closest thing we have. They're not going to go to New York to consider how to run the world. They're going to go to Jerusalem to worship the one who does run the world. And so year to year, from year to year, they go to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. See? This is like the city shutting off your water because you didn't pay the bill. This is the king of the universe shutting off your rain. Your nation will have no more rain if your king fails to bend the knee and worship Jesus Christ in Jerusalem at the Feast of Trumpets. See, and so this is part of what goes into the thinking there of these unbelievers. You know, why would unbelievers be all worried about religion? See, why are they all caught up about the festivities or the significance to the Feast of Tabernacles? What is the significance to the Feast of Tabernacles? See, holidays have different significance to different people for different reasons. All right. Well, obviously, they're, they're, the significance to these unbelieving brothers for the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't divine viewpoint. Well, then what was it? And I think it's pretty obvious. All right. So that was their focus. What was Jesus focused on? We read in Luke 9 that he was determined. He was determined. When the days were approaching for his ascension. And I think that's interesting. Days plural. His ascension will of course come in different stages over several days. And there will be actually a minimum of two and I think three separate ascension events. All combined together into one concept here of ascension, singular, but it's days, plural. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. We have purposes, we have plans, we have determinations, and obviously we have to have them consistent with the Father's determination and plans and intentions. And this is what we see. Jesus was fixed on his return to God the Father. 
Join with me now over in Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, but we have to do that. Remember, Jesus was an Old Testament prophet, and much of what he accomplished in his ministry relates directly to Isaiah through Malachi. Daniel chapter 7. We have a chapter that has a lot of bouncing back and forth internally, right within the same chapter. Uh, We've got a scene on the earth with Antichrist and tribulation, and then it flashes to a scene in heaven. And then it flashes back to a scene on earth. And there's a lot of back and forth. I think a lot of our modern English texts actually are uh, set apart with some paragraph markings and uh, pericope headings and other things, different uh, typesets so that you can distinguish between... uh, they can kind of jump out the page at you. Verses 9 and 10 stand out. Verses 13 and 14 stand out, depending on what uh, modern English text you're reading. In any event, let's focus in on 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a son of man, was coming. I remember the clouds are significant as the vehicle in which or through which uh, Jesus uh, departs from this earth in his ascension, the, the vehicle in which he returns to this earth. He will be coming on the clouds. And we see that defined here. So behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is what Jesus Christ has. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. And yet, what is on the other side of Jerusalem? Why is it that he has to go to Jerusalem? It's not because he had his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we understand this. You and I need to have this in our thinking. This ought to become our verse. We ought to just plug your own name in there and realize that we are going to be presented at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he's going to present us to the Father. All right, verse 14, and to him was given dominion. Notice, given, granted from the Father. He didn't try to claim it for himself. He didn't demand it. He didn't lay hold of it. This is what Antichrist's opportunity is going to be. Antichrist is going to try to take the kingdom for himself. Jesus Christ leaves it in the hands of the Father, and the Father grants it to the Son. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What a contrast. Antichrist's kingdom, of course, will be destroyed. Jesus Christ will personally do that in Armageddon. All right, so the idea of being presented before the Father. Presented to the Father. The goal that Jesus Christ fixed in his mind. All right, to that we can add, of course, Hebrews chapter 12. We can add to that Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 5. These should be, these are just off the top of my head passages that you all should be familiar with. Hebrews chapter 12. Fixing, uh, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that even though Luke 9 says that his, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, understand the motivation that was behind that. Understand that determined to go to Jerusalem had beyond that the recognition of the Father's purpose. 
And then uh, ultimately, let's get to the song of praise in Revelation chapter 5. John's weeping because no one can open the book or to break the seven seals. And one of the elders says, stop weeping. There is someone worthy, and then he sees the Lamb. Revelation 5, 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It is open to debate, by the way. Did he take the book? Is he already in possession of the book? Did he take possession of the book when he ascended after the cross? Or is he seated at the right hand and he does not take the book until he's ready to go forth? That's a legitimate thing to debate. But when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now I want you to notice here, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. And then the explanatory gar for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've got to understand that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what qualified him for the next stage in the Father's plan. That prior to the cross, he was not entitled to take hold of this book. So we have the cross work. You have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And notice, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. I think verse 9 looks forward to first ad, or looks back to first advent, but verse 10 looks to what Jesus Christ does in session. What Jesus Christ does, seated at the right hand of the Father, making the church to be a kingdom of priests. In any event, we'll have more to say on that as well. So what a contrast. The brothers are focused on earthly glory. Jesus Christ was focused on his return to God the Father. Subpoint A, the days of his ascension. The days of his ascension were drawing near. We start with the days of his ascension. Analimpsis, with the accent on the ana. Analimpsis. Analimpsis. Very short word study because this term is a hapax. Hapax legomena means this is the only place it's found in Scripture. Uh, number 354 in the Strong's Index, but our verse here in Luke 9 is the only place where it shows up. The verb behind it, however, has 13 uses, and so that helps us to understand what an analimpsis is. It's a noun that comes from analambano. Lombano is to take or to receive, and ana means up. All right, take up. The days of his being taken up. Now, it's not the day of his rapture. It's not the day of his being snatched up, but it is the day of his being taken up. Ana lombano, by the way, is the passage, is the verb that every single one of us is commanded to obey in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 and 16. You and I are commanded to ana lombano, the full armor of God. We have to take up the full armor of God. We can do so because Jesus Christ has been taken up. All right. There are other uses of it. Matthew 16 or Mark 16:19 is kind of spurious because it's in the disputed section of Mark. And it really belongs more to Luke's writings than to Mark's writings, but that's all right. 
Beyond that, look at all the uses in the book of Acts. Acts 1, verse 2, 11, and 22. Acts seven forty three, Acts ten sixteen, In Acts 20, we have verses 13 and 14. And then finally, 23, 31. Paul's uses, as I said, were Ephesians 6, verses 13 and 16, 1 Timothy 3, 16, and 2 Timothy 4, 11. So we have the term ana lombano, to take up or taking up. There's some, uh, I guess you get the sense of it here. We don't have to necessarily look at all of these. Let's grab the ones in Acts. That should be quick enough. Acts 1, 2. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the Gospel of Luke was about the ministry of Christ. Until the day when he was on a lombanoed, until the day that he was taken up. And then the, the words to heaven are inferred or supplied there. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, so he was taken up. Verse 11. Um, Verse 9 says that he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And uh, verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> right? These disciples are like a bunch of turkeys. You know, the rain hits them on the head, and they look up to see what hit them, and they can actually drown in the rain. They're that stupid. All right? And here's the disciples. And you wonder... If the angels hadn't showed up, would they still be standing there? <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, this Jesus who has been unalambanoed, taken up from you into heaven, will come, <clears throat> notice, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That is, physically, bodily, on the clouds. His, uh, this is the Mount of Olives where he's ascending. It's the Mount of Olives where he's going to descend, according to Zechariah chapter 14. And so the use is there. Over in chapter 7 and verse 43. Uh, okay, this is taking along. Taking along. It's a different aspect of Lombano. You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch. And the star of the god Rumpha, the images which you made to worship. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what you want to take along with you when you're being redeemed out of Egypt. Go ahead and bring your idols with you when the one true God is taking you out of Egypt. All right, 1016. In the vision there where uh, Peter was trying to be encouraged that he was okay to eat with Gentiles. And uh, this object, like a great sheet that came down, lowered by four corners to the ground, well, now it gets taken up. This happened three times. Immediately, the object was taken up into the sky. And there's other examples of it in chapter 20, chapter 23. Sometimes it's take along rather than take up, which is kind of awkward for us. We don't think if I take somebody along, it's the same as taking up, but it's the same idiom as far as Lombana was concerned. 1 Timothy 3.16, how he was taken up in glory, and uh, 2 Timothy 4.11.
So the days of His ascension. They were approaching. The days of His, of his ascension were approaching. Sum plerao. S-U-M. P-L-E-R-O-O. Sum plerao. Number 4845. Now plerao is to fill. You put the sum prefix on the front to fill together. Sum is your together prefix, like sympathy. All right. Sum plerao, to fill or to fill completely. It has a literal use in Luke 8 where the boat was being filled. There was a storm and rain and water and they're on the Sea of Galilee and the boat was filling up. And, you know, that's not good. Your boat fills up and, you know, if you have too much water in your boat, your boat ends up under the water. <laughs> All right. And so they woke up Jesus and said, we're in trouble. That's in Luke 8. It has figurative uses in Luke 9.51 and Acts 2.1. When it's used figuratively of time, it references time that arrives at a timely moment, the proper time, the perfect tri- timing. See, the timely moment for an event to take place. And that's what we have here in, in Luke 9.51. It's what we also have in Acts 2.1, that the time is perfect. Remember, Jesus does everything at the per, in the perfect way, for the perfect reasons, with the perfect timing. Septuagint uses are, are quite interesting. Uh, not only the verb sum plerao, but some cognate noun forms. Uh, when they appear in the Old Testament, they're mainly in relation to God's dealings with Israel. Uh, Jeremiah 25.12, 2 Chronicles 36.21, Daniel 9.2. The idea that the... the, the the plan of God is going forth and every milestone along the way is reaching its fulfillment in perfect timing with what the Father has designed. You and I don't understand it. Sometimes you and I disagree with it. If we'd had our preferences, the rapture would have come a long time ago. See, if it was up to me, you know, we'd have been raptured quite some time ago. See, just so long as it uh, didn't take place prior to September 1973. All right, because I want to make sure I get saved so I can be raptured out of here. But at any point after that, I'm okay. Let's rapture now. We should have been raptured 10 years ago. Well, wait a minute. We'd have been raptured uh, too long ago, then some loved ones of mine wouldn't have been going along, would they? So the fact that he's delayed till today has given more opportunities to come to Christ. All right. Um, let me just grab. I don't. I wasn't going to look at these, but let's go ahead and do it because to me, this is what helps us to understand why Jesus kept these things in his, in his uh, mind. Jeremiah 25:12 follows the proclamation of the captivity in verses 1 through 11. Uh, I think our nation ought to Read Jeremiah 25, 1 through 11 occasionally just to remind ourselves of what God's wrath's all about. That uh, when God brings a nation to its end. Well, anyway, um, not a happy news message. Uh, verse 10, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. You know, a nation that was all involved in fun and games and parties and celebration and everything else, it's over. No more fun, no more games, no more parties. You're done. 
This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Notice, 70 years. Keep in mind, of course, the United States is not promised an eternal destiny. And if we're destroyed in the fifth or sixth cycle of discipline, um, we're not promised a restoration. Israel, however, cannot be destroyed. And so even though God is bringing the Davidic throne to, a, to, a, to an end here, it's not an eternal end. It will be restored. So the captivity will be 70 years. Verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are soon plerao'd, completed, fulfilled. I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. Babylon will fall. They're, of course, replaced by the Persians. He will use his servant Cyrus of the, per of the Persians to allow his people to return. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book against Jeremiah, or which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. All right, so it's fulfilled. That's how the Old Testament ends. Second Chronicles 36. You say Second Chronicles ends the Old Testament? Yes, it does. Second Chronicles 36. And, of course, all the plunder and the end of uh, Zedekiah here. And how everything gets carried off to Babylon in verse 18. And they burned the house of God in verse 19. Broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of his desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were sum plerao, complete. And this is in agreement with Daniel 9.2. And this is what bothered Daniel so much in chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And Daniel says, boom, here we are. He was a kid when he was captured. He's now an old man in his 80s. He's lived the entire 70-year captivity. And this is what bothers him so much. Because everything is coming to, uh, coming to fruition just the way Jeremiah said. Babylon was indeed punished. Jer uh, Daniel was there that night when the writing on the wall appeared and he saw the city fall and the Persians came in. He sees all these things fulfilled. He says, there's a problem though. Our people aren't repentant. <laughs> what are we going to do now? So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And he actually offers intercessory prayer, intercessory confession on behalf of his entire nation. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. We have sinned, he says in verse 5. 
And verse 6, we're not listening to doctrine. We're not listening to the prophets. So they've been punished for 70 years. They're still not repentant. And Daniel undertakes a national prayer ministry. All right, so the days of his ascension were approaching. The day of him being lifted up. All right, and there's kind of a dual mode to thinking about being lifted up, right? Because the cross itself is a lifting up. Where he says, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men after myself. He has to be lifted up so that he can be lifted up. Ascension with the Father in glory. They are approaching fulfillment. Secondly, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. He sent Ungaloi ahead of him. Jesus sent Ungaloi, messengers ahead of him, to arrange the logistics of his journey to Jerusalem. Let me get back to Luke 9 now. question is, were these mortal human being messengers? Were they disciples? Were they other servants? Or were they spirit being Ungaloi? I think they were human being Ungaloi, but... Nevertheless, the term itself lends itself to either understanding. And if the context doesn't truly say, then I guess you're left, you're left pondering. So he sent Ungaloi on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now, I think it's interesting. Well, the, the ministry that these folks have. All right, let's just, I, I think they were humans. Uh, and... They weren't disciples. I think there's a difference between messengers and disciples here. We've got messengers in verse 52 and then disciples in verse 54, James and John. So just consider that those that traveled with Jesus beyond his training ministry, the seminary that went with him, the, the 12 and whoever else was attached there. Um, he had other messengers. And what was their role? And think about the, the nature of our dispensation, our stewardship, where we have different spiritual gifts, we have different ministries, we have different opportunities. And you say, well, you know, this, this doesn't seem very uh, important. Sure, it's important. You bet it's important. It's a support function. It's a blessing. All right. And uh, if this is your gift, if this is your ministry, if this is the, the realm that the Father has opened to you, um, it can be accomplished and pursued to the glory of Jesus Christ. So he sends messengers on ahead of him. And uh, it's kind of interesting. The, the literature, some people do speculate that there were angels, that Jesus had angels at his disposal to go hither and there and arrange for different things. All right. I don't see other examples of that in the gospel. When I do see angels show up, they minister to him in, after spiritual engagements after uh, times of testing with the adversary, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, angels will appear and, and provide uh, heavenly empowerment for him. But <clears throat> sending an angel into a village to uh, buy some food or to arrange for lodging or things like that, it <clears throat> seems more natural these would be human messengers. All right, point three. <clears throat> the Samaritans evidently only sold goods to northbound Jews. The Samaritans, evidently, I think there were two things going on. Way back when he was first beginning the... It's interesting because there's a Samaritan village at the beginning of the Galilean ministry and at the end of the Galilean ministry. 
In John chapter 4, we have the Samaritan village at the beginning of the Galilee ministry. He was fleeing the realm of Judea because they had arrested John the Baptist. And uh, he was in danger of being arrested as well. So in John chapter 4, he's headed up to to Galilee, passing through the Samaritan region. And he sits at the well outside of town and the disciples go in to buy food. Okay. Things were kind of smaller back then. He didn't have disciples and messengers. He just had disciples. Send the disciples in to buy food. And uh, that's when the woman came out. And he had the message there to the woman at the well. And, and uh, he exposed her adultery and everything else going on. And there was a tremendous revival there. All right. And the disciples were successful. They went in and they purchased food. They came out and he said, oh, I've already eaten. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that story there in John chapter 4. Well, now he's southbound. Okay. So you can relate Luke 9:43 to John 4, 8. And there's a couple of differences, but we're told here that it's because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Their motivation for refusing uh, not just hospitality, but refusing any provisions, lodging, food, even entrance into the city was because they were heading for Jerusalem. They were specifically uh, bound for the uh, city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. All right. So they were denying provision for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. We've discussed the background of the Samaritans before. Their uh, uh, flawed religion was based on a quasi-Mosaic law thing. They had their own Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch. They rejected the writings of the, the Psalms and other writings of the Old Testament. They believed that Mount Gerizim was God's mountain, not Mount Zion. They believed that the true worship needed to take place there in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. And, uh, and other things. Now, it's not just the direction of travel. It's not, I think if, if it was a secular Jew, they would have sold to him. The fact is, pilgrims going to worship in Jerusalem, that's what it really came down to. All right, that's what it really came down to, not the direction of travel. I'm sorry? 53.43. Yeah, typo in the notes. 53. <clears throat> I caught the one above it, too. The one above it had said 42 until I fixed it, changed it to 52, and then I failed to notice 43 should be 53. So Luke 9.53, you can relate over to John 4 and verse 8. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other anyway for a lot of different reasons. All right? Remember how the Samaritans got there. The Assyrians put them there. And so when the Jews came back from their captivity, their land is filled with these Samaritans. At least part of their land was filled with these Samaritans. All right? Josephus records some of the hostility between them uh, in the wars of the Jews later on in the Antiquities. The shorter account is the wars, which he wrote first, and then the longer account in Antiquities. Just pick up one of those. We've got some time this morning. After this, uh, there happened a fight between the Galileans and the Samaritans. The time frame for this is about 48 A.D. So it's after, um, after the life of Christ. It's after the ministry of Christ. It's during the book of Acts. It's during the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, shortly, actually, before Paul's first missionary journey. 
So uh, it would have been during the time Paul would have been at Tarsus uh, when Barnabas would have fetched him and they could have gone into uh, Antioch and things like that. They've not yet had their first missionary journey in the book of Acts. So there happened a fight between the Galileans and the Samaritans. It happened at a village called Geman, which is situated in the great plain of Samaria. Whereas a number of Jews were going up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> Same problem every year, right? There these hordes of Jews are walking through town headed to Jerusalem. A certain Galilean was slain. And besides, a vast number of people ran together out of Galilee in order to fight with the Samaritans. But the principal men among them came to Cuminus. Now, Cuminus was a governor. He was appointed by the Romans. In fact, he preceded Felix. He had Felix and Festus. Well, before Felix was Cuminus. And besought him that before the evil became incurable, he would come into Galilee and bring the authors of this murder to punishment. For there uh, was no other way to make the multiple uh, separate without coming to blows. However, Cuminus postponed their supplications to the other affairs that he was then about and sent the petitioners away without success. All right, they're going to the Roman political leaders saying, you better deal with this or, you know, there's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be problems. But when the affair of this murder came to be told at Jerusalem, it put the multitude into disorder and they left the feast. And without any generals to conduct them, they marched with great violence to Samaria nor would they be ruled by any but the magistrates that were set over them. But they managed by one Eleazar, son of uh, Deneus, and by Alexander, in these their thievish and seditious attempts. These men fell upon those that were in the neighborhood of the uh, Acrobatine toparchy and slew them without sparing any age and set the villages on fire. Okay, there you go. <laughs> if you can't find the exact perpetrators that killed the poor Galilean guy, well, then just go wipe out a village. That'll teach him. But Cuminus took one troop of horsemen called the troop of Sebasti out of Caesarea and came to the assistance of those that were spoiled. See, now he has to get involved. He also seized upon a great number of those that followed Eleazar and slew more of them. So they wanted revenge for the one dead guy. And now what do they got? More dead guys. Uh, and as for the rest of the multitude of those that were so went so zealously to fight with the Samaritans, the rulers of Jerusalem ran out, clothed with sackcloth, and having ashes on their heads, and begged of them to go their ways, lest by their attempt to revenge themselves upon the Samaritans, they should provoke the Romans to come against Jerusalem. See, get the Romans stirred up, now we all can pay the price to have compassion upon their country and temple, their children and their wives, and not bring the utmost dangers of destruction upon them in order to avenge themselves upon one Galilean only. You know, one poor Galilean guy. The Jews complied with these uh, persuasions of theirs and dispersed themselves, but still there were a great number who betook themselves to robbing in hopes of impunity and rapines and insurrections on the, of the bolder sort happened over the whole country. And the men of power... Among the Samaritans came to Tyre, to Umidius, uh, that's his first name, Quadratus, the governor or the president of Syria, and desired that they had uh, uh, desired that they had they that had laid waste the country might be punished. The great men also of the Jews and Jonathan the son of Ananus, the high priest, came thither and said that the Samaritans were the beginners of the disturbance on account that the murder they had committed 
and that Cuminus had given occasion to what had happened by his unwillingness to punish the original authors of the murder. So did you follow all that? All right. Samaritans killed a Galilean. Galileans went to Cuminus and said, deal with him. He wouldn't get involved. So they formed a mob and all of a sudden things escalate. And then now the Samaritans want their revenge. Well, they can't go to Cuminus. Cuminus is trying to put down the first riot. So they go to the, the governor of Syria, which is the next door neighbor there to the Judean province, the, the province of Syria. And so now you've got two Roman governors on opposite sides of this Samaritan and Galilean fight. Cuminus, the governor of Judea, and uh, Quadratus, the governor of Syria. So uh, anyway, it gets uglier after that. And should I just give you the happy news? Let's see. Quadratus put both parties off for that time and told them that when he should come to those places, he would make a diligent inquiry after every circumstance, after which he went to Caesarea and crucified all those whom Cuminus had taken alive. <laughs> That's the solution. Just kill them all. Take care of that. And whence, and when from thence he had come to the city of Lydda, he heard the affair of the Samaritans and sent for 18 of the Jews whom he had learned to have been concerned in that fight and beheaded them. But he sent two others of those that were the greatest power among them and both Jonathan and Ananias, the high priest, also Ananias, the son of this Ananias, and certain others that were eminent among the Jews, sent him off to Caesar, as he did in like manner by the most illustrious of the Samaritans. He ordered that Cuminus and Sealer, the tribune, should sail to Rome in order to give an account of what might have been done to Caesar. So anyway, they get before Caesar. This would be Nero. And uh, basically, Cuminus gets uh, disciplined. Uh, uh, most of the Samaritans are now put to death. And then he banished Cuminus and sent Sealer bound to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the Jews. After this, Caesar sent Felix. See, we read in the book of Acts about Felix, and we read about Paul's defense to Felix, and then we read about how Felix gets replaced by Festus, and Paul makes a defense to Festus, and that, well, this Cuminus guy was the guy that preceded them both. And uh, his downfall was the non-stop disagreements between the Samaritans and the Galileans. Anyway, that gives you a little bit of a flavor there for what some of the problems were like. And we see some of that here as early as 32 A.D. All right. So this is a fall 16 years prior to the events that, that uh, Josephus was writing about. All right. The, um, talking about James and John here. James and John evidently learned nothing from all the humility lessons of Matthew 18. Remember, Jesus brought his Galilean ministry to a close. He had a series of messages to... This was the, the swan song of, of the Galilean ministry. It was the, the final chorus of all the teaching that he'd been doing here for over two years now in the Galilean ministry. And they were all centered on humility. When he brought the child before them and said, here, you must become humble as this child. When he, when he spoke all those messages in Matthew 18, we spent considerable time on it ourselves. And what did they learn? Nothing. 
Matter of fact, it's almost as if they weren't even there. Almost as if Matthew 18 wasn't even in their Bibles. Okay? Which, of course, it wasn't quite yet, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. Let's just take a glance. Hold your finger there. And let's look over at Matthew. And let's look at chapter 18. Because everything we're studying today can be encapsulated in, in Matthew 19.1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Okay? This is Galilean departure and Samaritan rejection, right there in a single verse of Matthew 19. And so what preceded that? All of these humility messages in chapter 18, where the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he has to illustrate with this child, and he warns about stumbling blocks, and he tells them about the ninety and nine, and how he's concerned for even an individual sheep out of a hundred. All right, humility messages uh, about going to a brother in private and rebuking him so that you can win your brother. It's a humility message about forgiving your brother up to seventy times seven. <laughs> right. And these guys want to blast the Samaritan village. What happened to the 70 times 7? Well, they weren't even listening. All right. Uh, the the uh, unjust slave here, the slave that had been forgiven billions and billions of dollars and then couldn't turn around and forgive a, uh, a $50 debt, right? All of these messages, the whole con- this series of messages from chapter 18, every last one of them had a humility application. Every single one of them. And what did, what did James and John learn about it? Well, look what happens. Keep working with me backwards now through Matthew. They, they were completely ignoring every, all the humility messages in chapter 18, wrapped up with the uh, concept of greatness here, the first part of chapter 18, verse 1, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're focused on greatness. They can't get greatness out of their mind. Why? Well, back up a little bit more to chapter 17. And what happens here? The transfiguration. And they get a glimpse of what the coming kingdom is about. And who gets spotlighted in the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Ah. So now they're going to start thinking in terms of Moses and Elijah. Not as teachers, as miracle workers. As those that call down plagues, as those that call down fire. That's the ticket to greatness. Why do we remember the conquerors? Why do we remember the destructive ones? <laughs> All right. Why is it history records the conquerors? So James and John evidently learned nothing from the humility lessons of Matthew 18. Commanding fire was reminiscent of Moses. Or Elijah. I'll give you some scriptures on these. And reflected the disciples' continued preoccupation with their own definition of greatness. You look at Matthew 17.3. You look at Matthew 18.1. You see that here they are in Matthew 19.1 and they're still wrapped up in who's going to be the greatest Try to make a name for themselves among the twelve. 
And maybe Peter, um, you know, Peter had the praise in chapter 16. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. On this rock I will build the church and the keys of, of heaven and all this stuff. Uh-oh. Peter's in danger of taking that preeminent spot. What is it that James and John can do to get some glory for themselves? How can they build a name? Or how can they secure their place in the kingdom? What great things can they do? How are they going to get a, a blessed are you, James and John kind of moment? See, problem is though, Peter had that blessed are you, Simon Barjona moment, but it was very quickly followed up with a get behind me, Satan moment. All right. Something similar is going to happen here. They have this chance and they want to bring down fire and do all this stuff for glory and they get rebuked. Jesus calls them sons of thunder and, and he's exasperated with them like David was exasperated with his nephews, the sons of Zeruiah. All right. So commanding fire was reminiscent of Moses or Elijah. I mean, what gives you this idea? Hey, let's just call down fire out of heaven. You know, would that cross your mind on a daily basis? Right? No. What, what puts that thought in there? Now, we have just a couple minutes left. Let's, um, you should be familiar with these. Whatever we don't get to, we can save for next week. But... I believe this uh, this idea of calling down fire from heaven is not something they ever saw Jesus do. Right? They've been traveling with him for two and a half years now, for three years now. They've been traveling with him. There's only six months left until he goes to the cross. So they've been traveling with him for three years, two of them in Galilee. And not once has Jesus called down fire from heaven, right? He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's raised the dead. He's healed people. He's provided food. Not once has Jesus ever called down fire from heaven. What's given them this idea? All right. Well, Moses did it a couple different times. Elijah was famous for it. When you look at Exodus, this first one's not as well known. Exodus 9, 23 and 24. The plague of hail had fire associated with it. Usually it's thought of as as hail, but it was uh, fire with the hail. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been since all the land of Egypt since the since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. All right. Pretty spectacular, <laughs> wouldn't you say? All right. And this is what James and John want to do. Why? Are they trying to... Remember, why did Moses send the plagues? To show the glory of the Lord. To, to uh, convince Pharaoh to, to let his people go free. Are, are John and James trying to redeem a, a slave people? 
Are James and John trying to bring glory to Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel? No. They're simply offended that the Samaritans weren't going to provide uh, hospitality and and, uh, food and lodging for Jesus and and them on their way to Jerusalem. All right, so it comes down to pride. They were offended. So let's blast them. Uh, Leviticus 9.24, another example, maybe not as well known. I think we knew about the ten plagues on Egypt and the hail. Maybe we didn't realize that there was fire with the hail. But uh, Leviticus 9.24, here the uh, the priesthood is being sanctified, the uh, tabernacle has been constructed, uh, Aaron and his sons have been sanctified, uh, the priesthood's being initiated, and uh, the animals are being sacrificed to uh, consecrate Aaron and his sons. And in verse 22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire... Verse 24, a fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> all right. Would that get your attention? This is the way you start the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. All right. Bringing fire from the Lord. And of course, Elijah made a specialty of this as well in 1 Kings 18. This is the contest with the prophets of Baal on on Mount Carmel. And he called on fire from heaven. And, uh, goodness, I'm out of time. 2 Kings 1. I'm hitting so many of these good good passages here this morning. 2 Kings chapter 1. That's a longer one. Let's save that one. Then we'll come back and we'll wrap this up next week. And uh, we should be able to get through the rest of this episode and episode, maybe even episode 56 as well, the cost of discipleship, although that one will take some time as well. You can't put your hand to the plow and look back. There's some uh, um, important principles we're going to glean out of episode 56. So tell you what, let's stop there. We'll save Elijah for uh, next week. And we'll continue, uh, we'll actually have to get to the rebuke, where Jesus says uh, he rebukes them for, uh, for their desire, and understandably so. All right, Father, thank you for the truth of your word, thank you for this class this morning, for the privilege and blessing that it is. Father, uh, I just thank you that uh, we have an example here of uh, disciples that had the greatest teacher there's ever been. Um, I know, Father, sometimes there's a discouragement and uh, human teachers get discouraged. They wonder if their flock is listening. They wonder if anyone's learning anything. And Father, uh, we have the example. Here's the greatest teacher that ever lived. And he had these disciples for three years. They were under his teaching. They were under his ministry. And uh, and and then they, they pull a stunt like this. And you wonder, uh, what have, have they learned anything? Are they growing at all? Uh, what in the world's going on? So Father, I thank you that we have such passages. I thank you that we have the uh, truth of your word. And I thank you, Father, that in the outworking of your plan, you have the patience with each one of us to learn what we need to learn and to grow and to, and to develop. Father, uh, 
to be used by you in, in the outworking of your plan for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And Father, I just simply thank you for being so patient, for giving us the time to learn these lessons and to grow. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.